Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Okay. Okay, great. So I'll just jump into it now. So uh, my guest today is Ray E. Boomhauer, the author of uh, Richard Tregaskis, Reporting Under Fire from Guadalcanal to Vietnam. Tregaskis covered the war from the Doolittle Raid to the Battle of Midway, Guadalcanal. He was on the Russell Islands. Uh, he, per- he was on bombers over the South Pacific. He then went to Sicily, where he was wounded in the head. Uh, was at the Battle of Aachen. Went back to the Pacific to fly in B-29s over Japan. And was on the USS Ticonderoga, where he uh, flew along with uh, some torpedo bombers. Um, and then after the war, he traveled the world and reported in Korea and Vietnam. And did all this while suffering from diabetes. And he still managed to write three books during the war. But despite all this, uh, he seems to have faded from memory to a certain degree. Um, you being the author of a biography on Richard Tregaskis, I guess I would ask, what's your what's your elevator pitch for Tregaskis? And uh, why might he belong in the pantheon of war correspondents? I would argue that uh, Richard Tregaskis is considered by his contemporaries who covered World War II as one of the bravest of the brave war correspondents who experienced the conflict. And I think he ranks right up there with Ernie Pyle as a chronicler of the average man and uh, what uh, they went through uh, during the war. And I would also argue that uh, Trigascus probably covered more territory than almost any other reporter uh, who uh, wrote about the war. You know, he, as you said, he started out in the Pacific, uh, covered a variety of action there, went to um, the European theater, was there for the invasion of Sicily and the capture of that territory. 
then skipped over uh, not far away to the mainland of Italy and was uh, there for the invasion of that country. And it was there in Italy where he was uh, covering action uh, that a German shell finally found him and wounded him in the head. And he fought back and recovered and uh, really could have rested on his laurels. And Ernie Pyle said that when he wrote a column about Tregascus while uh, Tregascus was uh, recovering from his wounds in Italy, that if he had uh, experienced what he had done and had suffered such a wound, he would have gone home and, uh, you know, sat in his lounge chair for the rest of the war. But uh, Tregascus felt a, a calling to go back to uh, cover the conflict, uh, was, in, uh, was there for the breakout from the Normandy beachhead, followed uh, the troops until the capture of uh, Aachen, Germany, and it was brutal street fighting uh, battle uh, to capture uh, that city. And uh, finally had enough, went back home, and uh, the editors at the Saturday Evening Post decided that he should go back and uh, cover the action in, uh, in the Pacific. And they even asked him, you know, do you really want to go? And he said, you know, uh, not really, but I think I ought to go. And he did, and that's when he um, followed a crew of a B-29 Superfortress bomber from their uh, uh, flight from America uh, across the Pacific uh, to Guam and went with them on uh, five bombing missions uh, against Japan. And even after that was uh, finished, went back and uh, uh, reported from the USS Ticonderoga, uh, went on a bombing mission on a, an Avenger uh, bomber uh, against a, a Japanese naval base. And it was uh, a harrowing experience. And actually, the pilot and one of the crew members he flew with on a subsequent mission while he remained on the carrier, something happened to their plane. They spun in, hit the ocean, and were killed. Uh, so that happened to Tregascus uh, quite often during the war uh, on Guadalcanal. And, of course, he came the closest to losing his life when he was wounded on Mount Cornell in Italy. So, as you could probably tell from that uh, list of uh, battles he endured, he um, endured a lot during World War II and wrote very well about his experiences in, in three books, uh, two nonfiction accounts, including the classic Guadalcanal uh, Diary, and um, also uh, writing about his uh, experiences in Sicily and Italy and his uh, wounding in the book Invasion Diary. And uh, then uh, wrote uh, from his experiences in Aachen a, a uh, fictional account called Stronger Than Fear, which really, I think, captures very well uh, what he experiences in the street fighting in Aachen uh, through other characters that uh, he invented based on, on real people. So... It's uh, quite a career and one that I thought uh, should be uh, written about. And I was also, you know, looking for kind of the completion of what I'm calling my War Correspondent Trilogy. I had written uh, previously before about Ernie Pyle, who's from my home state of Indiana, someone I knew very well from my college experience at Indiana University, uh, studying journalism, uh, going to class at Ernie Pyle Hall, seen his memorabilia displayed there, 
So it was uh, quite an achievement for me to write a youth biography about his career uh, from his uh, days growing up in Dana all the way to his uh, death on Okinawa in World War II. I followed that up by writing about a gentleman named Robert Sherrod, who was kind of considered the Ernie Powell of the Marine Corps during World War II as he follows the Marines through the uh, Central Pacific. So I wrote a book about his experiences in the Pacific. So uh, Tregascus, who I had known since I was a high school student, I remember reading Guadalcanal Diary, being very impressed by it. So he seemed like the perfect guy to uh, complete my uh, uh, war correspondence uh, trilogy. So I was able to uh, do research on, on his life and uh, able to write the book. It was published in November of 2021 by the University of New Mexico Press. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah, uh, actually, you got a little bit ahead of me there. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so, I mean, you, that's a great uh, summary of uh, Trigaskis' uh, career experiences during the Second World War. And, I mean, to a certain extent, I think it even, even that sells it short a little bit. Because but mm-hmm. even between all of those high points of action, I mean, he was in Australia, in uh, Vanuatu, if I remember right, um, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. came back to the United States to go to Walter Reed. Um, so even between those high points, I think there's a lot of color. But um, Yeah, you get a real sense of what it was like to uh, cover the war from, you know, getting your accreditation all the way to, you know, being assigned to uh, a combat assignment by uh, by military authorities. Yeah, and I, I appreciated the parts, you know, uh, kind of about the the red tape and the bureaucracy mm-hmm. he he was right. determined to fight through to get the assignments he wanted um mm-hmm. so you did give us a little bit of background already um and how you got into the subject of covering uh Trigascus through the other two war correspondents that you wrote about but uh if you could just for a moment give us uh some more background on on how you came to to publish this book and your academic background sure uh I'm uh, for the last 35 years. I've uh, worked at the Indiana Historical Society in Indianapolis, Indiana. I started out uh, my career, though, as a uh, reporter, uh, like Pyle and uh, like Sherrod and like uh, Trigascus, working for a couple of small small town Indiana daily newspapers before uh, switching to history. And since 1999, I've been responsible as editor of the Indiana Historical Society's popular history magazine, Traces of Indiana and Midwestern History. And I've also found time on the side uh, to write a a number of books, uh, more than a dozen now, uh, usually uh, biographical in nature. Uh, As I said, I've written books about Pyle, I've also uh, penned biographies of Hoosier astronaut Gus Grissom, uh, Lou Wallace, famous as the uh, author of uh, Ben-Hur, and uh, other figures from Indiana's past as well. Uh, But the last couple of years, I've kind of branched out and writing a lot about uh, journalists, uh, not only uh, Robert Sherrard, but a guy named John Bartlow Martin, who was a freelance reporter and uh, wrote extensively uh, as a kind of a uh, a long-form writer for Saturday Evening Post. And that led me, of course, to uh, Trigascus. And really, I started looking at him about in 2017 as a logical next choice after writing about Robert Sherrod. And uh, in looking at his life, I found that there were two repositories of papers. Uh, 
about him, one at the Howard Gottlieb Archival Research Center at Boston University, and I went there in the fall of 2018, and another larger collection at the American Heritage Center at the University of Wyoming, and I went there in the uh, summer of 2019, and, uh, you know, found out a lot of great material about him, uh, was able to uh, have the University of New Mexico Press agree to publish uh, the book, and they're really invaluable resources, they're the archival repositories, but also uh, there are a lot of online news, newspaper sources these days because he worked for the International News Service. And it was kind of the poor third cousin to the other two wire service agencies at that time. You had kind of the Associated Press at the top, uh, United Press in the middle, and the International News Service, which was uh, part of the Hearst newspaper empire, uh, was kind of third in line. They were kind of like, uh, you know, the, the number three, and, and they, they tried harder than, than the other uh, wire services, as where the AP could send out, you know, 10 men uh, to cover a, a breaking major news story. Uh, the International Suit News Service were lucky if they could get one guy out there uh, to uh, to cover the, the news uh, that was breaking at the time. And uh, so his uh, reporting from the war was featured in a lot of small-town newspapers throughout the country. So, of course, these days we have newspapers.com, which was a, a great uh, resource for me in tracking down how well Tregasics' writing about the war was filtered down to places all over uh, the country. And I was able to get uh, a lot of uh, material out of, uh, we got past the uh, military centers and uh, tried to inform the public about what was really going on in the war in the Pacific and then later on in, in the war in, in Europe as well. And uh, at the end of the war, he kind of switched from the International News Service to writing for the Saturday Evening Post, and especially his time with the B-29 uh, bomber crew, uh, but also uh, after the war ended, writing about uh, the occupation of Japan and the establishment of trying to, uh, a new government there, and also wrote a number of articles for the Saturday Evening Post about uh, the return of veterans to their uh, former lives as uh, civilians and wrote a, quite a good series uh, profiling uh, these veterans and how they were, were uh, coping uh, with their return to s civilian life. Yeah, I think, I mean, it could definitely comes across in the book that Dragascus had a real skill for communicating the experiences of, of individual soldiers or sailors or Marines. And, I mean, he, he was present in several fairly significant battles and covers those with a unique perspective you know in in my show i i am very much concerned with you know the operational or strategic level of war but i do appreciate getting that very uh foxhole view of what was going on um what do you think gave him that his unique style of reporting or storytelling i think in the book there's a, a quote that i appreciated fairly early where he says the closer he came to getting killed in his career the better the story would be if he survived. Um, but what would be your take on that? I think that's a, a great quote to use, that he always tried to get it as close uh, to the action as possible. He didn't 
he and the uh, other war correspondents I've written about didn't want to be seen as uh, what were called communique commandos. That is, reporters who were more than happy to remain behind the battle lines back at headquarters and getting the canned handouts from uh, public relations officers uh, detailing uh, the advances in the war. Um, Tregascus had to go out there and uh, see for himself. And by doing so, of course, you're risking your life. You know, Pyle in the end, you know, lost his life, got too close to the action on uh, Ishima, uh, the small island off the uh, coast of Okinawa, and, and was killed. Uh, and uh, Tregascus, of course, came very close to losing his life as he got close to the action between uh, German and American soldiers uh, in Italy. He also had the knack for making connections with uh, larger-than-life figures. Uh, when he was on the Hornet uh, leading up to the Battle of Midway, he became friends with uh, John Waldron, who was the commander of the uh, doomed Torpedo Squadron 8 uh, that took off uh, to attack the Japanese fleet. And only one member of that squadron, uh, Ensign uh, George Gay, survived that, that battle. Uh, and on Guadalcanal, he became very close with uh, uh, Colonel uh, Red Mike Edson and his Marine Raiders accompanying them on uh, missions against the Japanese and uh, being able to uh, be there uh, when uh, after the battles of uh, Edson's Ridge, uh, also known as uh, Bloody Ridge. And when he was in Aachen, he became uh, close and, and got a lot of comfort uh, because he was, uh, his nerves had almost, uh, you know, his nerves were shot at the time yeah. uh, because of experiences uh, in being wounded, kind of suffering a little bit of PTSD at the time, and, and it was getting to him. And a, uh, an officer named Ozel Smoot uh, kind of uh, talked him down and offered some words of comfort to him during uh, some very tough battles uh, in the street fighting in Aachen and uh, got his, him, his nerves to finally to uh, settle down. And he was able to uh, report on, on the battle and uh, get his reports back uh, to the folks back home so they knew what was going on uh, in the war. Yeah, Ed, so you kind of touched on two points there that I wanted to uh, dig into a little bit deeper. One was, um, so his story almost sounds like fiction with all the, uh, one, all of the history-changing uh, engagements and battles that he was present for, but also just the personalities that he met uh, firsthand, some of whom you've mentioned already, uh, mm -hmm. Lieutenant Commander uh, Waldron, uh, Red Mike Edson, uh, he seems he at least was in the same room as several high-ranking officers, including, you know, Admiral Gormley, uh, mm -hmm. General MacArthur, General Patton. Um, how much do you think that informed his uh, perspective, I guess you could say, having spent time not only in the trenches, literally, but also in the, in the presence of those larger-than-life figures? I think he didn't let... Uh the larger-than-life than figures, you know, uh, influence him unduly. I think he's more um, more comfortable 
in dealing with the frontline troops and the officers behind the lines, kind of like what Pyle was uh, in his coverage during World War II. Uh, they much preferred to be out there um, with the men, uh, suffering as, you know, as best as they could what they suffered, you know, eating the same food, experiencing uh, the same uh, conditions, and uh, risking uh, their lives uh, in the process, as you mentioned before. He always tried to get as close to the action as possible because that's where the best stories were. And um, later during in the war, you know, he offered some tips to the folks back home. Uh, the best way to tell, you know, how accurate are these pieces we're getting back, these dispatches uh, from uh, the war zones. And he said you could always tell that because, um, you know, if a correspondent was talking about uh, people in uh, a company or a platoon, you knew very well that they were very close to the action because those were the people that are doing the actual fighting. And um, you could tell uh, by the datelines and uh, by the descriptions that a reporter was, was using. And Tregascus always tried to get uh, as close as he could uh, to the front lines because he knew that's where the best stories would be. And it certainly comes across in the biography as well. Some of the things I appreciate most are the stories, or not necessarily even stories, just uh, accounts of life aboard aboard ship when he's mm-hmm. when he's at sea, especially on the the smaller destroyers. Just the the strange level of discomfort, but mm-hmm. also having access to things like ice cream, which he makes clear is nearly unimaginable when you're with the Marines in Guadalcanal or with the, uh, with the army in, uh, in Germany or in, uh, Sicily. Um, and he does state that, uh, he does have a real appreciation for, for the average infantryman, but that, um, there is a, a very similar sort of, uh, bravery or, uh, fortitude that goes with being, you know, a sailor on a destroyer or a, uh, part of a bomber crew um i think i actually yeah i copied it down here one of the quotes from the book um about that uh that contrast between the different role that uh different war fighters would have had mm-hmm. um let me find it here I th- it reads uh the oppositions it was this is from a uh a bomber pilot who had fought in the uh both the pacific and in europe and right Speaking about the Pacific, he says, the opposition's much stiffer. Sorry, he's speaking about Europe um, Mm. and contrasting with the Pacific. So about the Pacific, about the European theater, he states, the opposition's much stiffer all along the line than it was in the Pacific. Here, you go out to fight like hell for an hour and then come back and put on a dress coat for dinner. Down there in the Pacific, you lived war. When you got back to the field from a bombing mission, the Japs were always coming over, bombing and strafing. They didn't kid around. The food was a lot worse, and half the time we didn't have enough to eat. Um, so that's the sort of color that I appreciate. Um, where would you say his, uh, maybe his knack for for communicating that came from? Or was it just his personal experience of having been there in so many different capacities? I think he, he uh, was able to, um, you know, get across his experiences to the average folk back home because of his long uh, experience as a, a reporter. Uh, he had uh, begun, you know, writing 
for the public uh, as early as his high school days when he earned a bit of extra money uh, reporting on uh, you know sporting events and other activities at his uh, local high school while he was growing up in uh, Elizabeth, uh, New Jersey. And um, he continued to do that uh, when he went to Harvard, uh, you know, picking up some money to help him um, uh, supplement his scholarships that he received for attending Harvard uh, by writing for local Boston uh, newspapers about Harvard uh, events. So he had this uh, vast uh, experience to draw upon uh, in, um, you know, writing about uh, events and uh, getting across, you know, uh, what was going on uh, behind the scenes uh, for uh, newspaper readers. And he took that experience uh, with him uh, as he went overseas for for the international uh, news service. And I was always uh, impressed uh, by the bravery he showed. You know, he's uh, a very tall correspondent. He's at least six foot five, according to his War Department ID card. But other people describe him later on as, as tall as six foot six, six foot seven. And uh, his friends joked with him as he went off to war that he would be an easy target. And actually, the Japanese might even capture him and use him as an observation post. So he had a lot going against him. He was tall. He was thin. And he was suffering from a very debilitating illness that he kept secret from his bosses, which he had learned uh, before, uh, you know, Pearl Harbor, that he suffered from a family illness, diabetes, you know, and so he didn't, although insulin was available at that time to control the disease, he didn't use it. He, uh, after the war, he switched to an insulin uh, regimen, but he tried to uh, control his disease by controlling uh, the diet that he ate, which was difficult to do uh, in a war zone. In fact, his, for his first assignment to uh, cover the uh, Doolittle Raid, he uh, took along with him 100 tins of, 100 tins of sardines. And uh, one of his fellow correspondents joked with him, you know, there's going to be food on these ships that we're going to be on, you know. But uh, uh, he always tried to uh, uh, keep his uh, illness secret from, from everyone. It really, I couldn't find, really pinpoint the precise time uh, that his secret got out. But I kind of uh, go back to the article that Ernie Pyle wrote about him in his recovery uh, after uh, Tricascus was wounded in, in Italy. And Pyle does mention that, uh, you know, Tricascus tried to tell the doctors, you know, that he had suffered, he suffered from diabetes because they had to, to know that uh, before they operated on him. So I think course, yeah. he kind of broke the news about what uh, Tricascus was dealing with during his uh, wartime uh, reporting days. Yeah, and I think, uh, obviously, he was an incredibly driven individual. I mean, to, mm-hmm. to go to a war zone with diabetes, to keep it secret, I think by the time maybe that he was wounded and shared that information publicly, it you know he had kind of earned his stripes, as it were. So he had kind of had already gotten his way in there, or into the profession. Right. But... Um, yeah, and he was very meticulous in uh, what he observed and uh, what he reported. He uh, carried along with him small notebooks in his pocket. He would uh, fill them up, 
and with information uh, that he found out uh, from his reporting. And then every night would uh, take that material and put it into a black gilt edge diary. And in that diary, you know, he summarized what happened during the day and uh, tried to mark the, the key moments uh, in his uh, notebooks. And the theory was that he used for Guadalcanal diary later that he could get all the DS details he needed by referring to his notebook numbers. And then he could write uh, a book about his experiences uh, from his notes. And this is something that he used uh, all the way uh, to his uh, reporting days in Vietnam, although he uh, tried to do a, a, a simpler system there where he just had one large diary book that he would enter the uh, information in. And uh, I particularly recall uh, a conference about Guadalcanal where uh, Richard Franks, who's one of the experts uh, on the battle, someone asked him you know, about uh, Guadalcanal diary and how accurate it was. And uh, Franks said that... Uh, he was uh, uh, very uh, delighted to uh, see that uh, uh, the information that Tregascus observed firsthand was always very accurate, and he was very detailed in what he wrote about. It could be trusted that uh, what he uh, wrote in his book is what actually happened. And uh, so I was uh, always impressed by uh, how... Uh, how accurate he was in the information uh, he wrote about uh, this in spite of, you know, all the uh, censorship that uh, every reporter had to go through with the various uh, uh, military uh, authorities, uh, with the various military services during World War II, the, the Army, and particularly uh, the Navy, which uh, was the service that was probably the toughest uh, when it came to uh, censoring uh, reporters. And it seems that he was just writing all the time, not only in the field, mm -hmm. but then when he would get any spare time that he had, whether he was in the hospital or on flights back across the Pacific or mm -hmm. just waiting to get to the next the the next objective or the next uh, assignment. Um, where do you think that drive might have come from in, in his childhood or in his college career? Uh, I think it came from uh, his experiences growing up. You know, he was always a very bright student uh, as a young person. Uh, his mother, uh, in uh, a piece that she wrote about her uh, two children, remembered taking uh, young Dick and uh, his sister Madeline on uh, numerous trips to uh, nearby New York City, uh, going to uh, museums and other cultural institutions. So I think he had a very strong educational uh, background uh, that kind of fired his uh, imagination and his uh, thirst for you know, learning about uh, new things. And uh, reporting offered him uh, a quite a variety of, of experiences, and he seized upon them uh, as, as much as he could, uh, writing uh, not only about, uh, you know, the police, covered the police beat for Balsa newspapers, he wrote feature articles, he uh, went out on spot news assignments. Uh, so he had uh, that experience to draw upon when he went overseas. So when he was thrown into new um, experiences, whether it be, you know, going out on a mission uh, on a ship, flying on a B-17 bomber, 
uh, going out on a long-range uh, mission with uh, Marine Raiders or marching up down the hills uh, with uh, parachutists in, in Italy. Um, he knew that he could uh, cover whatever came his way and he could uh, tackle uh, all these strange new experiences that, that were thrown at him. Yeah, I, I think what comes through in the biography is that maybe there were three things that really were the keys to his success. Um, one being his personable manner. Uh, towards the end, uh, you write about how his wife had mentioned that his he could be con- essentially conducting an interview with a soldier and they wouldn't even realize what was going on. They just thought he was he was being friendly. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after that, his drive. I mean, obviously, he was incredibly driven, maybe even a workaholic, always uh, overseas. Uh, potentially, that led, may have led to problems uh, with his first marriage. But, you mm-hmm. know, he was always writing either uh, cor- as a war correspondent. And then it seems when... He uh, wasn't in the heat of the action while he was recovering, and like you like you mentioned, after the Battle of Aachen, he decided to write a uh, a work of fiction. And, but then finally, uh, dedication. Um, it wasn't just that he was a generally amiable person, or that he had an extremely powerful work ethic, but that he was dedicated to the to the men who were actually serving on the front lines. Uh, towards somewhere towards. Uh, the end of the book as he's back in the United States recovering. Um, you quote him as saying is, don't they know that boys are dying and being crippled and living in dirty rain soaked foxholes? Don't they know how close we came to having our cities bombed, our people killed, our children crippled and starved. He lambasted civilians for complaining about food rationing, gasoline shortages and crowded trains when their own flesh and blood are suffering the agonies of hell on their behalf. He was always very dedicated to telling uh, accurately the, the stories of, of the men doing uh, the actual fighting and, and uh, that kind of lambasting of the uh, out-of-touch civilians came at a time when he was recovering you know, from his wounds uh, that he received overseas back home and seeing all the you know, people going out, having a good time, those who had uh, worked in the war industries who had a bit of money now, uh, enjoying you know, good food, good drink. And always in the back of his mind, he, he remembered, you know, uh, the uh, hell uh, that, uh, uh, you know, the Breen's experience on Guadalcanal, uh, the tough uh, conditions in, uh, uh, on Sicily and the mountainous countryside there as uh, the American soldiers and their British Tommy allies were battling uh, German uh, soldiers in, in the hilly countryside there. And he just... Uh, always wanted to remind people of the sacrifices being made uh, by uh, the soldiers, uh, airmen, and uh, sailors who were doing the fighting in the Pacific uh, and in Europe as well. Yeah. Um, so that's everything uh, specifically that I wanted to uh, to ask you about or bring up. Was there, was there anything we didn't discuss that you think is uh, important or pertinent or just uh, maybe an anecdote? Uh, from researching his life that uh, maybe didn't make it in the book that you still think is worth telling? Well, uh, there's always, in you're doing a, a biography, there are things that you wish you knew that you never found out. And that happened in, in this book on uh, Trigascus. I uh, was in going through his papers. Uh, I came across some delightful letters between... Uh, 
from him to his sister Madeline back home, uh, you know, and talking about his experiences on Guadalcanal, uh, the time he took to, uh, you know, write his book, a famous book, Guadalcanal Diary, uh, talking about uh, maybe the financial windfall that uh, might occur and he, how he would help out his parents uh, in, you know, buying, maybe buying a, a new used car for them or helping paying off their home. And uh, very, um, very uh, fun and enlightening uh, letters that told a lot about uh, his character. Uh, but unfortunately, there's really nothing that I found in his papers talking about what he thought of when his sister died as she did during the war. And if you go through the newspapers of the time, it's pretty much, uh, that, uh, you know, she killed herself. She committed suicide, uh, by getting in her car and leaving it in the garage, leaving it running and, and dying. Um, but I never found anything of him talking, uh, at the time or afterwards, uh, after the war about how the loss of his sister affected him. And, I, you know, that's something that, that I wish I'd found out and that I wish I knew more about. Uh, but there's always these tantalizing questions sometimes uh, when you're doing uh, biographies, uh, details that you wish you knew, uh, but are sometimes, you know, uh, lost to time. Who knows, you know, uh, in years to come, someone might be scrounging through their attic and they might find, you know, letters or, or other material that might shed some light uh, on your subject that you wish you had at the time. But you have to do uh, the best you can uh, with the material you have uh, because, uh, you know, eventually you've got to stop your research, get down and uh, get your fingers working and uh, actually put uh, words on paper or words on, on your computer screen these days and, and get the book done because uh, uh, that's your ultimate goal as a biographer to uh, you know, get the book done, get it out to the public so they know more about this individual that uh, you've devoted you know, sometimes years of, of your life to. Yeah, and, uh, let them know the uh, the aspect of eventually you just got to start writing and yeah. there might still yeah. be questions, but you got to go with the best answer you have. Yeah, right. That's uh, that's interesting though about the the death of his sister. Uh, maybe he, that was just him being a product of his times. You know, that wasn't something that people. Yes, about something or... you talked about. Yeah, it's just too painful, and suicide was still seen as a bit of a scandal at that time, and uh, so it was something he just didn't want to tackle in, uh, or put on paper. Okay. Was there anything else you wanted to uh, bring up? Um, I could say something that, you know, Tregascus, after World War II, of course, um, continued to go back to combat and eventually ended up in, in Vietnam where he tried to, uh, you know, kind of resurrect uh, the popularity he had experienced with his book, Guadalcanal Diary. And, um, you know, as he did in World War II, connected again with the uh, soldiers who had uh, gone to Vietnam in the early days of our uh, uh, experience there. Uh, these weren't the draftees of the later time in the war uh, that you think about today in the you know, later 60s. Uh, these were all vo mainly volunteers, and they were uh, veteran soldiers, experienced, and very dedicated uh, to their craft. Uh, but uh, 
Tregaska's had some conflict with some of the younger reporters who had not had the experience he had in wartime, who were uh, covering the war for the American uh, media at that time, including uh, a reporter for the New York Times named David Halberstam. And uh, there's a uh, very poignant story that Halberstam tells about, you know, he saw Tregaskis as one of his heroes, you know, had followed, you know, written, read his stuff from World War II and had uh, been more than happy to uh, take uh, Tregaskis with him to talk to the sources he had uh, developed uh, during his reporting for the Times. And they were coming back from one of these trips, and uh, Tregasis turned to him and said, you know, if, you were, if I was doing what you're doing, I'd be ashamed of myself, because he thought that he hadn't, uh, Halberson had not fully committed uh, to uh, supporting uh, the American uh, war effort in, in Vietnam. And it just shows the differences between that World War II generation and the, the new breed uh, of journalists in, in Vietnam uh, that were more willing, I think, to question uh, the government. Uh, but of course, it was a different war. Right. You know, right. it was uh, a, a war uh, that followed. There was no front line, uh, you know, uh, action and um, um, killing and combat could occur while you were sitting having a coffee on the streets of Saigon, you know, a VC bomber or suicide bomber come by and, and throw a grenade and uh, kill soldiers who were not in uniform, but were, you know, in, in civilian clothes uh, trying to enjoy themselves. Right. Uh, and the, this conflict um, kind of led to my, to my next project. Uh, Tregaskis had uh, written a, a review of uh, Halbert Sims book uh, uh, about uh, the war and uh, he, instead of, uh, he kind of lambasted Halberstam in, in his view of the conflict. And, but they had good words to say for uh, another young reporter who was in Saigon at the time, a gentleman named Malcolm Brown, who wrote for the Associated Press, who had written his own book uh, called The New Face of War. And uh, Tregaskis had uh, recommended that book if people wanted to know more about what was going on in uh, South Vietnam at that time in the early 1960s. So that led me to think, well, here's a, a guy I've got to know more about, Malcolm Brown. And so uh, that led to my next book project, which is uh, now uh, to be published by the University of New Mexico Press in early 2024, which is a, a biography of Malcolm Brown, really de diving into his experiences in Vietnam, from uh, reporting as a Saigon bureau chief in the early 1960s, uh, and he, all the way to uh, the fall of Saigon in uh, 1975. You know, he was there uh, in the country, uh, letting the folks back home know what about uh, our experiences in Vietnam. Uh, and so it, it's a book that takes a look at, at how different that war was and how it, uh, it changed uh, uh, America and uh, particularly a photo that he took that became one of the iconic images of the war. If you think about Vietnam, you usually think of three photographs that kind of tells the story of the war. You have the one uh, from the Tet Offensive uh, when you have a, a South Vietnamese police chief uh, shooting a suspected Viet Cong guerrilla in the head following the Tet Offensive. You have uh, the shot of the young... Uh, Vietnamese girl 
uh, screaming, running down the road, uh, naked following uh, a napalm attack uh, on her village. And very early in the war, uh, a photograph that set the scene for a, a lot of what Americans thought about the conflict was one taken by Brown. And it was in 1963, it was a Buddhist protest against the ZM government. And it was a uh, Buddhist monk who sets himself uh, on fire and uh, gives his life for the Buddhist cause. And that photograph, which has appeared on front pages of newspapers across the country, um, was taken by Brown. And he was the only uh, Western newsman able to uh, capture that event on film and uh, get it back to uh, AP member newspapers across the country uh, and across the world as well. So okay. uh, that's going to be my, my next book project. I mean, yeah, it sounds fascinating and definitely like a, a change of pace from uh, writing mm -hmm. about Tregascus, who, I mean, like I said, maybe was a product of his time where he was very suited mm -hmm. to uh, writing about World War II, but when he got to Vietnam, maybe it was the nature of the war, maybe the, the way he had learned to write about war. At least the well, impression yeah. I got is that yeah. it, it was time for maybe a new generation of a war correspondent with a with a different outlook to, to cover that war, it being so different from the Second World War. Exactly. Okay, well, That's again, today my uh, guest was Ray Boomhauer. Uh, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Sean, thank you for the opportunity. Great. Hey, okay. And then uh, I'll, uh, I'll edit this part off. I just like to do the... Uh, the the canned you know sign off. right um yeah so i i think that went well uh hopefully we covered everything you wanted to talk about i i really enjoyed the book um i'm glad i got the chance to read it i you know i it seems like i say this every time i i talk to an author you know i feel like i've read a lot about the second world war um you know maybe not an excerpt but uh, uh a well-informed amateur and mm -hmm. even uh, there's always things i'm coming across that i hadn't heard of before you know like yeah, it's amazing in this yeah. book i've read about before i'm familiar with but i've never mm -hmm. heard I, I can't believe i've never i've probably run across the name richard chagaskis and but it just you know was just another data point that didn't get filed away right but, uh, yeah yeah definitely the way you wrote about it and the um i guess that i mentioned it a few times that kind of foxhole look i really mm -hmm. appreciated to see these events that i've written about um from that perspective it's a yeah different perspective is always helpful whenever you're you know dealing with these large-scale events like you know a world war so it's always helpful to get uh to kind of uh focus down on what the actual men in the in the trenches so to speak we're, yeah. we're dealing with yeah and also it kind of reminded i was started thinking about i don't know if you've ever read the flashman papers um it's a fiction uh by uh, George McDonald Fraser, he wrote them in like from the seventies to the early nineties. Um, I remember them, but I'd never read them. But I, I remember, uh, you know, seeing them, uh, you know, kind of uh, written about. And, yeah, uh, but, I've got yeah. all of them on my bookshelf over here. I've read all but the last one. Um, it kind of rem reminded me of that because Flashman, he like he's a Victorian era mm. scoundrel, but he gets <laughs> in all these different. He's in like the retreat from Kabul and in uh, the. Uh, Taiping Rebellion and all these he's ends up in like involved in uh, the Zulu War just like every major conflict of the 19th mm -hmm. century and he meets 
all the famous people, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Queen Victoria, uh, Bismarck. And it kind of reminded me of that. I was like, how did this guy find yeah. himself in every single uh, uh, major event of World War II and running into a, not all of, but a lot of the major characters of the war? Yeah, it's just amazing to me. I didn't know. And you know, I'd read Guadalcanal Diary, but and, and I'm not knowing a lot about his life. But his, you know, his first mission he sent off, you know, to cover the uh, famous Doolittle Raid. So that's quite uh, an event to cover for your first assignment in, in the war. Definitely yeah. an auspicious start. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, hey, thanks again. Um, I'll send uh, you and uh, Michael an, an email once it's up with the link and everything. That sounds good. Okay, Thank great. you, Sean. Thanks All for right. your time. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.